Uh, Let me pray with you, then we're going to get started on uh, our simple topic for today. Father, God, I thank you for all those that are in this room. I thank you that you brought us all here safely. I pray for those that have had a very difficult week, Uh, those who have had to serve in their careers and jobs in ways to uh, care for our city and our properties as the rain came down, Uh, those who have lost houses or buildings, um, businesses due to all of the flooding. We just pray that you would be with them. Help us as a community to, to see those who are hurting and are in need and to come alongside of them and to help where we can. We do pray for this uh, Chattanooga officer, especially his family, as just doing a routine job uh, has lost his life. Uh, we just pray that you would be with their family as, as they struggle and suffer this morning. Uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're making a turn. We only have two weeks left in Simple, including today. So we're finishing this up next week. We have really been talking about uh, concepts that you could literally live in a bubble and follow Jesus. And a lot of people like to take Scripture and read it in just that way. What do I need to do in my faith for me to follow Jesus? We're making a turn this week and next week, and we're adding some more people to the mix. And the reality is, when you begin to add people into your life, unless they are just like you, it is difficult. Amen? Okay, some of you are nodding your heads. You all know it's true. So what I want to talk to you today is about our simple mission. Next week, I want to close out with talking about a simple church. And some of you may be familiar with the term simple church, where it talks about just limited programming. And while we are somewhat of a a proponent of that, Uh, That is not what we're going to be talking about. There is another side of relationships within the church. When you get people together that are different from each other, and when you begin to understand how God works through diversity, you begin to see that we have a role that we may not even understand in each other, but we have a role together as the church. So we're going to talk about Simple Church next week. Uh, But I want to talk to you about our mission, that you and I have a mission. So far, where we've been in this series is talking about uh, a, a simple faith, in which we trust that God is real, we trust that what God says is true, and not only is it true, but it is necessary. So we need to be doers of what we know to be true, not just say, yeah, that's true. We talked about simple worship, and that God is so overwhelmingly incredible and overwhelmingly worthy of praise. He is the most important thing in all of existence, and the most important thing for us who follow Him, that He not only deserves, but it is an honor to worship Him. Sometimes when we come to worship services like this, we, we tend to think, well, I'm here to get something out of worship. Uh, that was ne- as not a biblical understanding of worship. We don't come here for us to get something out of it, though what we find is that when we do truly worship God, we get something out of that. Amen? And I challenge you to take some time just to consider who is God And have a a time of just being still and quiet before him, worshiping him and recognizing his incredible work um, in all creation. And if you haven't done that yet, I encourage you not just to do it once, but to do it regularly, do it daily. Because our worship is something that we do every day, not just when we come here together. We talked about simple love. What What would happen if we as the church just decided every person we come in contact with, the primary message that we want them to see... Uh, from us is that God loves them. What would it look like if we just loved people rather than lumping them in categories and deciding, oh, I'll love the people that are like me. I'll love the people that agree with me. I'll love the people that don't make me mad, but everybody else bets her off. What would happen if we just enlarged our circle 
and just loved people. We followed that up with talking about simple holiness and the fact that not only are we called to be holy, not only are we called to follow the the commands of Jesus, but it's to orchestrate our lives in such a way that we live out his truths. And there is a way that seems right to us that is not. And there is a way that is right with God. And that is what we are in pursuit of. It's a process of us growing. Last week, we talked about simple life. And the reality is, is that God wants to do some incredible things in our lives, but we are stuck. We are stuck because we have no margin for God to work. And the reality is our schedules are overpacked. Our checkbooks are underfunded. Our debt accounts are, you know, maxed out. And we don't have any margin. If God said, I want you to go do something, I want you to be a part of something, we, we not only don't have the margin to go do it, we don't even have the margin to hear from him so that he, we can hear him saying those things. And so we talked about simplifying our lives so we have more margin. And as I shared with you, uh, this is an area of my life that I still struggle with and are still trying to figure out. I want to make the turn to simple mission Because we cannot grow as followers of Jesus if mission is not a part of our lives. Now, when I talk about mission, you probably already have some ideas about what I mean, some expectations about what I'm going to say. You probably even have some feelings about it. As we go through this, I want us to, to just start with a basic understanding that before we get into talking about mission, you are loved. You are loved. Whenever we begin talking about evangelism or reaching the lost, usually the emotion that comes up first is of inadequacy or shame or guilt based on kind of how you came through uh, the church understanding these things. You should be doing more. You should be doing better. You shouldn't be messing up. You should be more intentional. And we tend to take those on and we begin to feel more and more shame and guilt that we're not measuring up. But the truth is, is God never approaches us in that way. He approaches us wholly and completely from the perspective that God loves you and God loves me. God loves us. So as we understand mission, understand the mission is born out of love. It is not born out of shame. It is not born out of expectation. It is not born out of some list that you're supposed to follow. It is all born out of love. And we begin to understand how good God is. We begin to understand how important he is to our everyday lives. Then we do begin to worship him more. Psalm 96, 3 and 4 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Have you ever considered that mission within your life revolves around God's love? Or your worship? We, we sometimes separate them. When I was a kid, I thought that the most spiritual people in the world were missionaries because they would go out into all these other places in the world and they would leave all the comforts of home and they would go and share the gospel. And I thought, now that is what a person who loves Jesus does. When Deidre and I started dating, she felt like she was supposed to be a missionary to France. And I said, I don't think you are. <laughs> and she, she, she didn't, but... Now I talk to her, I say, you know what we should do? We should move to France. <laughs> now we have four kids, that's harder. But we tend to understand evangelism in the perspective of a few people go leave everything and go share. But we understand in the context of worship, it changes that. We understand the context 
of what Jesus is calling us to, it changes the understanding of mission. It changes the understanding of evangelism. So I'm not even going to use the word evangelism much at all this morning. I want us to focus on mission. And I want to talk about three passages primarily. I've got a few things to share with you, but three primary passages I want us to focus on are three of the last words of Jesus. Three different passages talking about Jesus' last conversation with his disciples. And they are, they are similar and yet not identical. And let's just see what Jesus is saying as he is leaving and as he is teaching about what next, what's happening next for you as Jesus is leaving. John 20, beginning with verse 21, says, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. One of the most basic principles we can take from what Jesus is trying to help them to understand is that he is sending us out to continue his mission. You do not have a unique mission. Your mission is adopted from Christ and it is adopted from what he has done. When you read through and understand what Jesus is doing within his ministry and all throughout the New Testament, what you see is something that he is preparing you to continue. He is sending us out just as he himself was sent out. So when we begin to think about his mission, when we begin to, to think about where that leads us, we have to begin to think about, well, well, what does Jesus want for me, and how am I supposed to do that? He was Jesus, right? This is the Son of God, fully God, fully man, but fully God, and I'm not. So how do I understand my mission in all of this? Romans 10, 14, and 15 says how important you are in this process. It says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, right there, some of you can check out because you're thinking, well, I'm not called to be a preacher. (laughs) And that is not what he's saying. This is not about the career of being a pastor. This is not about having the role of preaching in a service. While there may be some in this room that do not know Christ, and they know they do not know Christ, the likelihood is they are probably not in this room. They are outside somewhere else, driving around, eating out this morning, sleeping in at home, watching TV, wherever. They are probably out somewhere else. When he talks about the beautiful feet of those who preach the good news, he's not talking about the professional Christian. We have to make that designation. He's talking about you. The act of preaching is the act of proclaiming what is good news. That is our role. That is the place in which we are called, and most of us feel inadequate and insignificant in it. One of the hopes that I have, and we've spent a lot of time talking about in here, and I hope if you've been with us for a while that you're picking this up, is that you are not in you're not expected to do this by yourself. As a church, it's not about being trained enough. As a follower of Jesus, it's not about reading enough books. 
watching enough videos, having a good enough script. But instead, there is real power through the Holy Spirit to accomplish this mission. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to his disciples to continue his mission. Back in John 20, 22, when he said this, he breathed on them. I'm sending you out. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. They are connected. Your ability to go out and be able to share the gospel with anybody is dependent on your ability to allow the Holy Spirit to work through you. It is not just you've got to be a good enough speaker. You've got to be a good enough debater. You've got to know enough scripture because I think one of the biggest pushbacks is is people think, I do not have all the answers for someone who is reluctant. And when we understand the gospel in that way, then we understand it in some kind of a mental exercise similar to any other decision we make in our lives. But the choice to follow Jesus is not the same as a choice of what car we're going to drive or what clothes we're going to wear, which house we're going to choose. But we sometimes put them lumped in the same place. So while we go to a house and we want to know, well, how old is the air conditioner? How old is the roof? How, how, how dependable is it? How do I know that this house is going to sustain our family long term? How do I know I'm not going to have to spend lots of money in it you know, down the road, that it's kind of good to go once I buy this house? We sometimes approach the gospel in the same way. How do I know God is real? How do I know that God's going to take care of me? How do I know that Jesus is going to make sure that I have the best life I can possibly have? What about all those places in Scripture that I'm not sure about? They even seem to contradict each other. How, how, do, I, how do I do that? If we approach Christ in the same way we approach every other decision we make in life, then we will misrepresent who he is and what he's trying to do. This is very different. But this is the way the church has, for at least in the recent past, accepted its role in evangelism is, I need to overcome your objections. And I get it. I remember when I dated Deidre, I had to overcome several objections. I get it. Relationships are more complicated than buying a house, right? That's right. You all, I, there's a story for another time, but she dumped me at one time, and it took me a while to convince her that I, she should stick around. But she came around. She came around. I overcame her objections. <laughs> so let me ask you this. What is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? You ask different people, you get different answers. The mission of the church is to reach people, right? The mission of the church is to worship, right? The mission of the church is to educate people, right? The mission of the church is to give people an opportunity to use their gifts, right? I, what is the mission of the church in your mind? Because at the end of the day, that's what matters in a church, is, is how those who make up that faith community describe it, define it, live it out. What is our mission? There's some that are very focused on the organization of the church, the facilities, the programs, the finances. Those are all important things. But is that the mission of the church? There are a lot of people who are focused on reaching people who are outside these walls and, and reaching the lost. And that's important. But is that the mission of the church? So what is the mission of the church? If we 
break it down the way we're going to understand mission of the church is a mission is a task for which you have been sent out to complete. It's a mission. Whatever it is, it's a task that you have been selected to go out and complete. You have been given a mission. And we need to talk about the church. What is the church? Is the church journey church? There are a thousand churches in Hamilton County. Do we have a thousand different missions in our county? What about in our state? What about in our nation? What about in our world? We understand the church. We are defining the church not as Journey Church of Chattanooga. The way we define the church are the body of Christ. Those who know him, who follow him, who are going out and being his hands and his feet. That is the church. So what is the task in which we have been sent out to complete as the body of Christ. That is the mission of the church. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So then they had come together. They asked him, Lord, talking about Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to him, It is not for you to know the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Let me read verse 8 again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Your mission is meant to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You are not meant to do this alone. You are not meant to go out and change the world by yourself. You're not meant to engage someone and show them how much Jesus loves them and for them to have a relationship with him all by yourself. As a church, if we can facilitate a process to get people to become Christians and to get baptized and to attend church, and we have done it without the power of the Holy Spirit, we have done something other than the gospel. Because there is a bigger picture to the mission than that. Our goal is not simply to grow our community. It is not simply to be in bigger facilities. It is not simply to be able to say how many people we baptized. There's a bigger mission. It is meant to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Something supernatural is supposed to happen in us, around us, and in someone else. It has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we go around the room and I'll simply say, when was the last time you felt empowered by the Holy Spirit? There would probably be a lot of blank looks, I would guess. There's sometimes I read these things and I think, gosh, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Do you ever have those moments when you read Scripture? You're like, "I, I don't think I measure up. When was the last time you felt empowered by the Holy Spirit for something? Your mission is meant to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is not about your ability to argue, not about your ability to memorize Scripture. It is not about your ability to persuade. That is not what leads a person to know Jesus. That may make them into a churchgoer, may make them into a cultural Christian, but for someone that has a life-changing experience with Christ where their life is transformed, this happens through the Holy Spirit, not by your or my ability. So if you put yourself on the chopping block and just say, I'm not good enough, understand that is the point. 
You're not supposed to be good enough. If you're good enough and you don't need God, you're doing something other than His mission. But if you are coming to a place where you are constantly having to rely on Him, then you may be exactly where He wants you to be on mission. If you feel like, you know what, I can't do this on my own, you're in a good spot. If you're in a place saying, I don't have all the answers, you're in a good place. Because if we're going to accept a simple mission, remember throughout this simple series, the point is not easy without conflict or without effort. It's not simplistic. It's simple. The mission is about being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus constantly, when he talked about this with his disciples, followed it up by saying, you will have the Holy Spirit to do this. If you do not feel that the Holy Spirit is constantly working within you, then that is an area to be praying about right now. Because he never told them to go out and do this on your own. He always said, go out and do this and let the Holy Spirit do this through you. Your mission is meant to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But also what we find in verse 8, which I think it just, for me, takes a lot of the pressure off of this, is that your mission is to give testimony to what you have witnessed. You're supposed to tell people what you have personally experienced. Now that can be either freeing or that can just make things even worse, right? I'm not sure what I've experienced. But if you have an experience with Christ and your life is different because of it, you have something to share with other people. If you have not experienced Christ in a way that your life is any different than it was before, then you probably don't feel that you do have something to share with others. So he's saying, you will be my witnesses. He's not saying, I want you to go make this up. I used to attend a lot of church conferences. And I stopped going several years ago because I, I, I found that we would go and I was an eager young pastor and I would go to this conference and they would tell me what the church is supposed to be about and how we're supposed to get there and, and how do we really change the world and reach lost people. And I'd get all excited and I'd buy a whole stack of books and I'd get all excited about it. And then the next year I would go back and they would almost, almost teach the exact opposite of what they talked about the year before. Have you ever been a part of something like that? Maybe you have different vendors come in and do training on products, and they'll say with absolute fact, this is the way you're supposed to do it. And then the next vendor comes in, and the next thing you know, oh, no, 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 that's, you don't want to do that. This is the way you want to do it. And I felt like within the church publishing world, I was caught up in this back and forth, not of what was true, but what was the next thing to sell? God is not asking us to make up this thing that sounds good that we can sell to people. He is simply saying, if you have had an experience with Christ, you need to share it with other people. So the question becomes less about, well, then what do I need to share? When I grew up, that was the Roman road. How many of you remember the Roman road? It's a good thing, not a bad thing at all. You should know Romans. You should know some scripture to lead a person to know Christ. When Fisher's Bible study is part of the thing that they're doing on Sunday afternoons at one. You should know scripture. You should have some confidence in God's word that leads a person to know how to follow Christ. However, he's not asking us to memorize a process. He's asking to communicate an experience, a relationship. If you're in a small group and you're going through the sermons uh, on, on, during your small group and you're kind of discussing it, one of the questions you will probably be 
uh, discussing in your group is going to be simply, who were the people that made you interested in knowing Christ? Who were those people that made you interested in knowing Christ? Not which sermon made you feel like you needed to become a Christian, but who were the people that made you interested? See, that is a mission. Who are the people that demonstrated what it means to know Christ to a degree that you said, I think I want some of that. I, that's, that's important to me. I want that too. So if you can't answer that question, you probably can't if no one's ever asked it to you because we don't think about it in those terms. But I would encourage you to think about who demonstrated to you authentic faith in Christ that made you interested in following him. What they did was they gave you a testimony of what they had witnessed, which is very different from somebody who says, I'm an expert, let me tell you my expert opinion. Those are very different things. We would joke as when we were growing up, when we were youth, we would get saved all the time. I don't know, did y'all ever grow up in a system like that? church system where you got saved like every time there was a revival anybody do that you seen it we would we would do that we get saved all the time and uh uh one of one of my he was actually became one of my favorite pastors but he preached a sermon one time and it, it wasn't new a lot of people say it, but he got up and he was spitting and i mean it was you know it's a good sermon when people start spitting so if you're on the front row and you get wet that means it's a good sermon and he started spitting and getting excited and his face started getting red and And he said, if you are only 99% sure that you're a Christian, you're 100% lost. Like, oh, I might be lost. If I'm not 100% sure, I'm lost. We get saved all the time. That's never the way that Jesus communicated good news. It's never the way he did it. One of the reasons that that was such an effective tool, and I remember in high school reading Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and Jonathan Edwards described us and God's wrath as we were just spiders dangling from a web, and God has us over this cauldron of fire, and that we are just touching the flames if we don't follow Jesus. I remember reading that thinking, oh, that's intense. <laughs> I was a Christian by the time that I read that, and I thought, man, that's good. That's good. That'll make a person want to follow Jesus. But it took me some time to realize that actually doesn't lead people to want to follow Jesus. That makes them afraid of him. The testimony that we're giving, are we giving a testimony of fear? Some of you who read your scriptures will say, well, we're supposed to fear God, but that's not what it means. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we're afraid of God. It means that we're afraid of not being where God is. And so when we we package the gospel all in fear and talking about hell, hell is real. A friend of mine pastors a church in town, and I just love him. He's just a great pastor. They're doing great things as a church, and they had developed another campus. And uh, that campus kind of walked away. So we don't have anything to do with the main campus anymore simply because we don't believe in your stance on hell. And my friend's stance was basically this. Hell is real, but I don't know what it looks like. I don't know exactly what it is. It's real. We should know that it's something bad. 
But all the imagery in Scripture is not meant to be of an exact literal place. It's just a description of something being really bad. And so the leaders of this particular church felt like, well, that's not a good enough stance on the reality of hell. And so they decided to leave and go out and do their own thing. And I thought, that is crazy. Of all the things to split a church over, that's not one. But one of the reasons that we get so drawn to a a doctrine of hell is because we have embraced a gospel of punishment, not a gospel of freedom. When we embrace a gospel of punishment, we communicate the gospel in terms of punishment. Are you certain that you're not going to hell when you die? Isn't that a fun way to enter a conversation with somebody? It's like when somebody comes and knocks on your door and says, hey, did you know that you're a terrible person? Hi, my name's Mark. You know, oh, come on in. Have a seat. Let's talk. You know, would you like some coffee? You know, or. He's telling us, don't give, you're going to give a witness of what I've done within your life. Being on a mission means that you're not only experiencing something with Christ, but you are instead telling somebody how not to be punished. That's not what Jesus said. And what he's calling us to is a mission that says, I have experienced something and I want you to experience it too. If we have true life-giving relationships with God, that is what we share. The reality is, is that we will naturally proselytize. You know what means a proselytize, kind of evangelize. We will naturally evangelize the things that we love. I mean, think about it. What recommendations, unsolicited recommendations do you make to your friends? Maybe where to go eat. Maybe where to go on vacation. Maybe what, what to watch on Netflix. We, we naturally evangelize what we love. This is a good thing. You should, you should see it because it will be a good thing for you too. And the reality is, is the people that we naturally proselytize to or evangelize towards are the people that we care about. So that if you're meaningful to me and I have found something meaningful to me, then I want to share that with you. I want you to find this meaningful thing too. And we just naturally do it. But when we come to talk about the gospel, then we close up and we clam up and we're like, I don't know if I can do, I don't know that I should do that. I mean, I just want the pros to do that and i don't want to mess something up but we just this is a process that we naturally do with people we love about things that we love and what jesus is literally saying here is just tell people about what you've experienced and that doesn't mean that you have to answer every objection or every question this is what he's promising us in john 10 10 the thief comes only to steal kill and destroy i came that they may have life And have it abundantly. Let me ask you this. Just take a moment. What have you experienced personally about God in your life? I don't mean a belief. I don't mean a scripture you've read. Although it may coincide with the scripture you've read. But just think bigger picture. What have you experienced personally about God in your life. Think about it for just a moment. What can you be an expert witness about God in? 
Think about it. Not that you've heard. Not that you've been taught. I mean, you've lived it. You've experienced it. What have you experienced personally about God in your life? This is your testimony. This is your testimony. This is the core of our mission. To be on a simple mission means that not only are we aware of what we've personally experienced, but we want to share it with people we love. And as we talked about simple love, what if we just chose to love everybody? Even if they disagree with us. What if we just chose to love them and then we just naturally want to tell them about what we've experienced personally. See, people can disagree with you on a lot of things. They can disagree with you about your interpretation of Scripture. They can disagree with you about which Scripture you read or which version of the Scripture you read. They can disagree with you about lots and lots of things. They cannot disagree with you on what you have experienced. Oh no, you didn't experience that. That didn't happen. Yeah, it did. And even if they do disagree with you, that disagreement carries zero weight with you because you know you experienced it. So when we begin to understand that mission is about communicating what we've experienced, then we take all of that fear out because what if they disagree with us? What if they reject us? Well, it's okay because I've still experienced it. It's still life-giving. I I still love it. I'm still excited about it. And I hate that you don't experience it too. It's kind of like crystal hamburgers in my family. (laughs) Somebody like to go to crystal? I've got one friend, one friend, okay, maybe two. I've got two friends that like to go to Crystal, period. No matter how much I tout the goodness of what Crystal is. Now, I will be honest. I will be honest. My experience with Crystal has changed through the years. As I get older, I have a little different experience than when I was younger. Those of you who maybe don't like Crystal know exactly what I'm talking about. However... I only have two friends that like to go to Crystal, no matter how much I tell them. And most everyone else I talk to uses the word Crystal with a snarl in their voice. And they're wrong. Because I have experienced something better. Amen? Thank you for that. We're all going to Crystal after. Everybody. We're going to get a steamer. We're going to share it with the whole congregation. It's going to be awesome. Two large fries will go to the entire group. All right. But see, I'm okay with some of those that have not quite experienced the goodness that I have. Because it's still good for me. See, the same way with Jesus. I'm okay if you disagree with me because it's still good for me. I still like it. It's a lot better than Crystal, I will admit. But... I still love it. I get something out of it. This is a positive experience for me. And even if you don't agree, I'm not changing it for me because it's not about me getting you to commit to a way of belief. I'm trying to get you to understand an experience that changes everything. And I've experienced it. So I'm okay if people disagree with me. What have you experienced personally about God in your life? I'm about out of time here, but... I do want to go through the last of the three passages of Jesus' last words. It's Matthew 28. We're going, to, we're going to go through this quickly. We're going to, we'll start with, with verse 1 in Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear for him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee that there they will see me. So this is the experience of the very first people that loved Jesus and watched him die, got to see that he actually did come back from the dead. And they were overwhelmed with worship, which is our response, our natural response to authentically seeing God. That we will worship. That's just what we do. It's built into our DNA. This is how we respond to God when we understand. And then verse 11 happens which is the great conspiracy theory of the scriptures that says while they were going, they're all going off to tell the disciples, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. These are the people that put Jesus on the cross to begin with. All the the nice church people did it, right? Not the Romans, because they said, we don't have anything to do with them. It was the church leaders at the time who were gaining something other than a relationship with God out of their service as a priest. They go to them and they tell them, Jesus has risen from the dead, which goes completely against their whole purpose of the crucifixion. And when they had assembled all the elders and the council, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They paid them off. And said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. In other words, tell them Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But I mean, he's gone. So we've got to have another plausible explanation. So just tell them that the disciples stole his body and they're pretending that he rose from the dead. See, now they're trying to change the story of what has been experienced. And it's interesting that it says that story has gone even till this day, which is still held by some, that Jesus was real and a good teacher and a good man, but not God. Great conspiracy theory. They tried to take the experience away. Because you see, it's in the experience where the power is. It's in the witness of the testimony where God is beginning to work great things. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus was directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, because it is our natural response when we experience God. They worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We call this the Great Commission. Let me break this down very quickly. And then you can spend more time with this, especially if you're following along on version. So based on Jesus' last words of his disciples, what is our mission? Number one, our mission is to make disciples. This is a radical departure from the way we do church today in 2019. 
It is not to baptize people. That's a part. That is not the mission. It is not to get them to attend our churches. That's a part. But that is not the mission. Our mission, as Jesus begins to talk about it, is to make disciples. There's a difference between being a believer and being a disciple. Whenever we believe, James 2, 19 and 20 says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, there are evil beings that believe. But something changes in a person that actually accepts their role as a disciple, accepts a leader as the discipler. And says, I want to become like this person. There's a difference in belief and that. And that is what we are called to make. Disciples. Those who are following. You can believe without following, but you can't follow without believing. Does that make sense? So I can believe and say, yeah, okay, so I think it's probably true, but I'm not doing it. But if I'm going to follow, that means I believe it. So following is what we are supposed to be reaching for. Tim Sanders said several years ago, I heard him speak, and he was, at the time, was an executive at Yahoo, which is uh, just about gone now. But he said this, and I've never forgotten it. He said, you will accomplish more in one year by investing in two people than, than by trying to get two people to invest in you. And I want you to consider that just for a moment. A lot of us try to get people to invest in us, like us, accept us, do things for us. But I love what he said. You will accomplish more in a year by investing in others than trying to get them to invest in you. Which means as a church, if we embrace this ideology, we go farther in our mission as we invest in others than trying to get others to invest in us. We are making disciples. We are investing in them to help them to become something else, and we gain because of it. Hebrews 5, 12, and 14, Paul says this as an an admonition against their lack of growing as disciples. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. And what he's literally saying here is you should be investing in others. You should be teaching others. Not being focused on, well, I just need to learn more. What if you are not growing in your faith because you are not investing in someone else because you're waiting to grow to a certain point before you do that? What if God is inviting you to experience Him in new intimate ways and ways that completely blow your mind and and, and change the way you view the world, but the only way you're going to get there is if you stop trying to all take it inside and instead you start to try to give it to everybody else? 
that instead of being someone who soaks it in or a consumer, as we talked about last week, you are a contributor. You are someone who is investing and teaching and discipling others. See, in the church, it's so easy in our, div- our role-devised church world to say, well, that's the role of the small group leader. That's the role of the pastor. That's the role of the elders. That's the role of whoever else. And the truth is, what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying here is, that is the role of a person who has witnessed Jesus. That is you and me. It is not just me. So as you begin to embrace this idea of mission, you begin to understand that you were to go out and share it with others. So number one, we're to make disciples. Number two, we are to baptize new disciples. Now, baptizing is not just what we did the other day in here, where we have a tank of water, we dunk them, or we go to the lake and do it there. But instead, there are three ways you get baptized as a believer, and we'll talk about this another time. Number one, you're baptized into the family of God. <laughs> Holy Spirit does this. Number two, you're baptized in water, to demonstrate that you, the old person has passed away and, and something new has been created in its place. We have water baptism. That's number two. And then number three, if you'll remember our discussion from a few weeks ago, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the Holy Spirit. This is where we have Paul going, or Peter, I'm sorry, talking to some new uh, believers. And he asked them, have, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, no, we don't even know what you're talking about. And he prayed over them and they received the Holy Spirit. And it radically changed their understanding of faith. So when he talks about baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he's not just saying we we go and tell them about Jesus and then we try to baptize them and then we're done. I think it's interesting whenever different groups ask us about our discipleship numbers, they want to know how many people we, we have seen come to know Christ and how many people have been baptized. And that's it other than money numbers and attendance numbers. But this is never the way Jesus talked about faith, never the way he talked about evangelism, never the way he talked about mission. It was not to let's get them in the door and let's get them in the tub and now let's go on to the next one. But that's the way we often receive it. It is a part of our mission. It is not the whole mission. Number three, our mission is to live out and teach the commandments of Jesus. This is where we're following as disciples. He goes on in Matthew 28 to say, Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Message, or excuse me, your mission is to be a disciple that is making disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we do it? I know I should have broken this up into two weeks. I I don't want to do this next week. How do we do it? Four quick ways and I'm done, I promise. Number one, lead with love. If we get to the meat of the matter, how do I move forward in this way? Number one, lead with love, not with knowledge. John 13, 35, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Lead with love love if you want to accept this mission new commandment i give to you love your neighbor as yourself when asked what is the greatest commandment if we're going to follow the teachings of jesus what is the greatest commandment love the lord your god with all your heart your soul your mind and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself lead with love love 
people. Just love people. How else do we do it? Number two, be a disciple. Struggle with learning. Struggle with understanding. Struggle with practicing. Submit to Christ's leadership within your life. Grow in your knowledge and understanding of God and His Word. Be a disciple. Number three, pray for opportunity. Pray for opportunity to share your experience. And I will tell you this, opportunity looks like relationships. If you're not building relationships with people, you're not going to see opportunities. We sometimes say, God, just show me an opportunity to share my faith. And like there's this random un, you know, unbeliever walking around town, and all of a sudden they glow bright red or orange or something like that. They kind of blip like they're on your Google map or something. And oh, there they are. I'm going to go tell them. Opportunity looks like building relationships with people. And it will take building relationships often before you get to share anything deeper. Number four, practice makes perfect. Remember what the definition of perfect is in Scripture? Complete, whole. You get better at it. You begin to understand and communicate your experience better. The more you share, the more comfortable you become. And the more effective your sharing becomes and cutting through kind of the individual relationship stuff, practice makes perfect. The truth is, we we started this church to reach a, a lot of lost people. And at times, we've been more effective at others. But here's what I've come to learn about churches that reach lots of people. Churches that reach, reach lots of people have lots of people reaching out. It's not the effectiveness of the service. It's not the effectiveness of the program or the effectiveness of the teacher. It, it are people choosing to love and to communicate what they have experienced. If we boil all this down, if you leave here with one thing, I know I've shared a lot with you. If you leave here with one thing, Your mission is to pass real faith on to others, period. Pass what you have on to others. That is our simple mission. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, you alone have called us to know you and to follow you. Father, you alone have empowered us be able to do that with any effectiveness at all. And Father, I pray that you would help us to open our eyes to what your mission is around us. And Father, that you would show us how we can better love others. We can better follow you personally. And I pray for every person in this room, if they cannot point to an experience with you where they knew you were real and they experienced you were working in their life, they would experience that right now. I pray that you would condition our minds so that we are constantly focused on who you are, what you're doing within us. And I pray that you would give us a boldness and a courage to go out and to share the incredible experiences we've already had with you. Father, lead us to continue to be a part of your simple mission. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to be here to worship unhindered. And I pray that as we sing and praise your name one more time together.
Father, that you would hear the worship on our lips and from our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.